Welcome to the Analytics Power Hour. Analytics topics covered conversationally and sometimes with explicit language. Hi, everyone, and welcome. This is the Analytics Power Hour, episode number 232. My name is Tim Wilson, and I'm excited to announce that we've crunched all the data, run it through the latest AI, and come up with the most perfectly optimized episode ever. Mo Kiss, Director of Marketing Data at Canva, is one of my co-hosts for this show. Mo, are you excited to be part of this episode that the data has told us will be absolutely perfect? Oh, I can't wait to talk about single source of, of truth and and uh, absolute certainty and all of our answers. Oh, Perfect. And Val Kroll is an optimization director at Search Discovery. She's my other co-host for this episode. Val, being an optimization maven, I take it you're pretty excited that we'll be achieving guaranteed perfection with our decision to do this fully, fully optimized episode. I am honored to be a part of the most perfect power hour episode that's ever existed. (laughs) (laughs) Great. We will proceed with that certainty. Obviously, it's silly to think that crunching any amount of data guarantees something like a perfect show or a perfect decision. We actually do have a process for selecting show topics and guests, and that process aims to have more hits than misses. Uh, But that's really not unlike the world of our our stakeholders or our business partners face. They're, They're trying to make the best decision they can in a noisy world, and they want data and analytics and experimentation and research to help them make better decisions. But the data is never going to be perfect. The results of any analysis or experiment rarely point to a guaranteed truth. So how much uncertainty is acceptable? When should an organization just keep on crunching that data to try to increase the signal-to-noise ratio versus combining that noisy signal with human judgment to just make a damn decision and move forward? We're reasonably certain that a discussion on that topic will be useful. But we wanted to get a guest to help us out. Michael Kaminsky is the co-founder of Recast, a modern media mix modeling company. That would be an MMMM company for those keeping score at home because four M's are better than three. He's held past roles at Harry's Grooming, Case Commons, and Analysis Group. And he's, in my mind, one of the most thoughtful producers of mixed modeling content out there on the interwebs. And mixed modeling is a broad and deep and messy space that is really all about helping marketers reduce uncertainty as they try to make decisions about where to invest their marketing spend. I'm absolutely certain that he will be a great guest for our discussion today. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you so much. I am so happy to be here. Thank you, Tim, Val, and Mo for having me. Fantastic. So let's start off with easy stuff. Like we're not expecting this episode to be focused like solely on mixed modeling, but to me, that's kind of one category of analytics work where there is an actual quantification of uncertainty that's kind of baked into the results. So I kind of wonder how often have you had companies come to you expecting that like mixed model is going to be that silver bullet. It's going to give them a precise truth that really just isn't realistic? Like, have you had to have some kind of uncomfortable educational discussions with with clients or prospects about that? Constantly. So, I mean, everyone wants the silver bullet, right? That gives them the answers and tells them exactly what to do. But I think in the context of media mix modeling and marketing measurement, which is where I spend a lot of my time, as with almost every other application of data analytics or data science, there's actually a lot of uncertainty. And I think one of the hardest roles for analysts and data scientists is 
communicating that uncertainty back to stakeholders or business users in a way that is true, right? So that helps them like understand what's actually happening, but also helps them make decisions, right? Because what I see happen a lot is you can really emphasize the uncertainty and then the business user is like, well, this doesn't help me because there's uncertainty. I need an answer. <laughs> or you can hide the uncertainty, but that also doesn't help them because then they can't make a fully informed decision. You tell them, yes, you know, variant A1 and it was statistically significant, like don't worry about the uncertainty. That's not great either because it doesn't help them weigh all of the trade-offs. And so I think a big part of what analysts need to do in this modern world is think about how do we communicate that uncertainty effectively, help our business users understand the limitations of a given analysis, but still also help them make whatever business decision they're trying to make in order to propel the business or the organization forward. Ooh, so where do you start with that? Do you start with trying to nail down what the decision is they're trying to make and, and back into it from that? Or <laughs> how do you do that? I th so I think like starting from like understanding what the decision is and what the relevant trade-offs are, I think is a, is a great place to start. This requires, you know, work that I think analysts are sometimes uncomfortable with because it requires like really learning how does the business actually work? You know, what is the downside cost of making a mistake here or not? And these are like, those are very much business questions. Like it, things MBAs spend a lot of time thinking about. And so some analysts, especially earlier in their career, need to learn that skill of actually understanding the business in order order to be able to help that decision maker make a really good decision. The other thing that I've found is really helpful is trying to make things more concrete for those stakeholders. Um, a good way to do this is like scenario analysis. There's a high scenario, a medium scenario, a low scenario. I'm really working through what the implications of that are, as opposed to just giving, you know, a point estimate and a p-value and saying mm. it's significant, really like help them understand, look, like here are the range of possible estimates and here's what the implication of that range is on this thing that we actually care about. So one of the things that I advocate for a lot is moving away from point estimates and towards something more like a credible interval or a confidence interval, depending on what framework you're operating in, and then really working through what the implications of that are and whether that's, you know, in the spreadsheet, just saying like, here's what the results would be at the midpoint and at the low point and at the high point to other more sophisticated things. I think that can really help those people who don't have statistics training begin to start to concretize like what the implications of this analysis actually are and start to get them familiar with this idea of uncertainty. I mean, for me, uncertainty is just a fundamental part of existing in the world. And so it's really important to start to get business users who are going to be the recipients of more complex analyses that we're doing comfortable with the idea of uncertainty and then starting to make decisions even in the face of that uncertainty. It's actually so funny, and I'm, I feel like I'm going to spend all of this episode talking about my team and the exact situation that we're in right now, because <laughs> we are in this, like, muddy place of, I guess, different areas of the business and different regions have different levels of both market maturity and measurement maturity. So, like, we have created this situation where, like, the complexity of what we're doing has significantly increased, but likewise, I guess the confidence around the recommendations we're making has improved substantially, which is why we've muddy gone into this muddy water. But it is really tricky on stakeholders. And one of the techniques that we did try, actually, that you just said that worked really effectively the last time was that, like, we're going to make a recommendation. This is what low, medium, and high looks like. And just letting you know, if you go for the aggressive case, like our confidence decreases 
in terms of what there is like us being able to determine what we think the likely results will be. And actually that like you, you absolutely were spot on because that was really well received. Um, and I felt like it was like a good, like slow step into some of these concepts. That's amazing. That sounds really successful. Surprisingly, right? I actually had the reverse happen to me uh, with a client where when we were giving results of a test, exactly how you described Michael doing some of the confidence intervals, they weren't happy with the fact that we were giving that range. They're like, well, the last agency mm. we worked with just gave us the yes mm. and no. Like, <laughs> apparently, like, I don't know what mm. tools you're using. <laughs> we're like, well, actually, it was always there. It just might not have been described to you in this way. But it does take like a more mature, open conversation, like you said, to make them comfortable because at the end of the day, the goal is for them to be able to take an action and make a decision, not, you know, be like, oh, this is the one number (laughs) and I can take it to the bank. All right, it's time to step away from the show for a quick word about Pyrrhic Pro. Tim, tell us about it. Well, Pyrrhic Pro is easy to implement, easy to use, and reminiscent of Google's universal analytics in a lot of ways. I love that it's got basic data views for less technical users, but it keeps advanced features like segmentation, custom reporting, and calculated metrics for power users. We're running Pyrrhic Pro's free plan on the podcast website, but they also have a paid plan that adds scale and some additional features. That's right. So head over to Pyrrhic.pro and check them out for yourself. Get started with their free plan. That's Pyrrhic.pro. All right, let's get back to the show. Can I just to clarify when when we're saying a low, medium, high, is that a this is our conservative prediction, the median prediction and the best case prediction or because Mo, when you were talking about it, it almost sounded like you were saying I might have mis- mishearing that it was kind of like when when Michael was talking about it, I actually had the same thought. I was like, I think he's talking about confidence levels, whereas in my case, we were actually talking about low, medium, and high spend recommendations. But likewise, like in that particular situation, the midpoint we have the highest confidence in, and then when you go to like the two extremes, that's where we have less confidence, essentially. But yeah, I actually picked up on that as well. I think that Michael and I were talking about slightly different things, but you know, it all it all pulls together, Tim. Yeah, I think it pulls together. It's this idea that there is uncertainty, right? And I think like any amount of communicating that back to business stakeholders is really important. And depending on what level they are at today, you might sort of choose how deep or how far down that path you want to go. I think a lot about credible intervals because I'm sort of a Bayesian statistician. And so that's like the way that I frame a lot of the world. But then that can sort of plug into other decisions that we have high, medium or low confidence in based on sort of where those credible intervals lie. And so there's subsequent analyses that you can do that you might frame slightly differently than just like a pure confidence interval on an A-B test, for example, like I think what Val was describing. But not to, I don't want to belabor this, but I want to kind of go with the kind of an extreme, which is drawing from my past where, and it is a media mix example, but if a, an organization, a brand says, we're hearing all about connected TV, we've done zero connected TV, but we think connected TV is going to be amazing. And it, to me, there feels like there's like a logical explanation of saying, this is an entirely new channel. And you're saying you want to put between... 5% of your spend into it to 50% of your spend. And if you put 5% of your spend into it, I'd feel like your overall results, I'd be more confident because you're 
you're putting limited spin. Like, doesn't that depend though on the risk appetite of the business? Because like, if we were doing something well, like that, we'd be like, cool, we're going to spend this amount, but we're treating it as an experiment. We're not treating it as a silver bullet. It's like we're testing the waters here. Well, but if they're going to put fifty percent, that's pretty scary. Well, right. But I guess my my point is that if somebody comes in and says we're going to do this new channel. Do the analysis and tell me what result we can expect. And you're like, there's there's a discussion to be had. Like, where the fuck do you think I'm going to get that? <laughs> like, I have I have, you know, I don't really have data to to work from, so I can't. Mm. I guess. And so, Mo, as you're talking about like doing doing more stuff, whether that's new channels or different creatives or mm. going into influencers or podcast advertising or whatever, is that like is there some discussion to be had that's saying? I mean, I, I, that's a fantastic way to reframe it. Actually, in the one case I'm thinking of, that's kind of how they actually came to it more saying, we want to try this and let's treat it as an experiment. Mm. Uh, but that actually seems like a one pivot if they're asking for something that it's like, there's going to be incredibly high uncertainty. So let's not treat this as me making a prediction with a mm. level of uncertainty can we instead reframe that as a cost of data and an experiment so that we can be more and so we've reduced the uncertainty for future decisions? Does that make sense? I'm just talking to myself in circles. I'm totally yes. Like I agree with you. I mean that's that's how I would tackle it. But there is like definitely a hard case where you get to and yeah, like things are really complex at the moment for us and there is definitely like we're going to push into like new channels and new tactics and that sort of stuff and yeah like a an MMM is not good at handling that so Michael I'd love to hear from you a little bit about how how you guys manage that no I mean I think you know everyone is right uh if you're going <laughs> to something new and you have no data you're and again in a Bayesian framework what we say is we're going to fall back to our priors right we're going to have some right. prior belief about how bad or good this channel could be. And before we actually see any data, we're just going to assume that it could take any value in that range or within some distribution of that. And so in that example, prior to launching on connected TV, I might run the numbers and say like, look, like here's what the impact is on the bottom line of the business. If it's really good, if it operates like an average channel or if it turns out bad. Right. And then we can at least make a decision like how disastrous could this be? What's the downside that we care about here? And maybe that pushes us away from the 50 percent of the budget into that channel before we're able to test it a little bit more. But overall, like that's sort of how I think about it. And again, I like to educate the business on, look, today we don't know anything and we're going to be able to get more certain as we sort of experiment more with this channel, either via structured experiments or just by starting to spend into it and then observing what happens in an MMM type context. And then again, that idea of like going from a huge amount of uncertainty and then narrowing that down and thinking about what's the value of that additional information we have. I think those are all great levers to start educating the rest of the business on this way that we might think about the value of uncertainty reduction. Ooh, so Mo, back to you. Does that get used as a – because, Michael, you said I think was – that's another kind of a twist of, yeah, the uncertainty may be high, but let's think about this not as just a where within that range of uncertainty would this be a, a, a an unwise decision, but how can we also make sure that as we're making that decision, we are reducing our uncertainty I guess, but Mo, isn't that, in that literally complex- what you're doing with an experiment? Like, but is it? I mean, if you if you just introduced a channel based on 
I mean, you don't have to, but you'd want to, wouldn't you want to push to say, can we do this in a methodical way, whether it's a truly randomized controlled trial, or if it's instead something that's even longitudinally, we're going to look at it that way. I guess, do you do that now as their decisions are being made? Are you both trying to give them the information to make the decision in the moment, but also saying, let's look ahead and say, what do we think we will have learned in two months by you taking a flyer with something new? So like, is the question that if we were going into a new channel, would we basically in two months, like try and look back and be like, is this working? Is that, I don't know if I'm oversimplifying. (laughs) If you, if in one of these areas where things are getting more and more complexity, and therefore you're struggling with the uncertainty, are you also looking at that increase in complexity and saying, what can we do so that we're also setting ourselves up in the future to not just just have an ever-widening set of uncertainty to deal with? Yeah. So I guess the thing, part of the reason that things are complex, like we probably, I don't know, maybe Michael can tell me if this is like the standard thing that businesses do, but like our approach is basically we have our MMM, where things look funny or essentially we have uncertainty, we use experiments to calibrate it. And we're like, either we don't have a lot of data about this channel or something feels off about it or whatever the case is, or it's a new thing that we haven't done before. We're going to, we're going to set up experiments and we have a few different types of experiments we run. And then we calibrate our MMM with that, right? Where we have, I guess, a lot of complexity is like, we don't have an MMM in every market. Like, and I don't think it's feasible to expect that you're going to have an MMM in every country. So the complexity actually comes from what do you do in the other markets? Because I actually feel like in the markets where we've, where we're fairly mature, it is about reducing uncertainty. But in the other markets, that's where things are a bit more difficult. Cause then you're like, I'm going to have to try and use like either publisher data and their experimentation if we're not set up to run experiments there. And then like, so you've got this suite of tools, but the truth of the matter is like, and we do have a lot of new senior marketers who've come on board and like for the people that have been around for ages, they get it. We've taken them on this whole journey about why we're doing what we're doing. But if you are brand new and you've just started in the business, you're like, I don't get it. I'm used to one report and it tells me what the answer is. <laughs> and it tells me how my channel performed last week. And it's like, we're not doing that anymore. So like the complexity comes from like, you're going to have different levels of maturity for different markets, essentially. I don't even, I haven't answered your question at all. And I also don't know if I've explained that well. So (laughs) I'll jump in and sort of add some comments that might resolve some of these differences. So I think, Tam, it sounded like you were asking this question of, you know, how do you think structurally about reducing uncertainty? And I think this is a thing that we think a lot about at Recast and that we recommend to people, which is, look, like if you're going to pull back on spend anyway, like do it in a structured way that maximizes learnings, which maybe does mean mm. instead of pulling all of your channels back at the same time by the same amount, which means that you won't you know, be able to do a pre and post analysis to differentiate, stagger them in some way. Same thing when you're launching. Try to think a little bit about what's going to give us signal so that we can analyze it in the future such that you can maximize the lessons learned from whatever changes you happen to be making. And I think that that is, again, it's a good 
you can't always do it, right? There are other business considerations outside of learning new things. Like we care about, we tend to care about on the analytics team, but I think it's a good habit to build and to try to explain to people, look, if we add more variation into the data and we can do that in a structured way, we will have more to analyze on the other side. And I think, Mo, the things that you were talking about is another thing that I spend a lot of time thinking about, but it's a slightly different question, which is how do we do triangulation as a business, right? Which is we have different data points that might be coming from the marketing platforms and they might be like, well, it worked in Australia. Maybe it's the same thing in New Zealand or maybe not, or maybe it's different. And we have this one test that we ran, but we ran it nine months ago and we changed creative since then. How do you pull that information together in like a structured way? And I think that is a really, another really important skill that analytics teams and data science teams can, can really start to help with, which is how do we, we have all of these disparate points of information. We all sort of recognize that there is no single source of truth, silver bullet to solving this. But I think what we can do is help our business, uh, our business stakeholders start to think structurally about what are the different pieces of information that we have? What would happen if this was true and this thing was, you know, informing that and then help them work through that logic of triangulation from those different data sources, which are often generally measuring different things, right? So neither of them is, none of them are perfect or right. They're measuring different things. How do we bring that information together to give us, you know, the best perspective that we have today on this very complicated problem we have or difficult decision we need to make? Okay, so how do we do that? (laughs) Well, that was actually my question too, is this whole like putting that triangulation into practice because I love that concept, but you even talked about it the way you just talked about it, Michael, is like the logic of triangulation because I mean, there's we have a hard enough time sometimes getting someone comfortable with the pros and cons and the strengths and drawbacks of an individual methodology let alone multiple and bringing them together. And it's like, sometimes it feels like elite, but I would love to hear like how you approach that. Like Mo said, how do we do that? (laughs) So Val, I can, I can tell you by the end of this week, I will have a document of my attempt to do that. (laughs) And then I want to hear if it's going to be totally off the mark or if I need Michael to check my homework. (laughs) We'll link it in the show notes. But (laughs) are there two? (laughs) Aren't there two, there's, there's two things. There's the triangulation through different measurement and experimental techniques, which is kind of one framing. But I was also hearing that there's, there's kind of a, a structure around what are the different classes of decisions, a changing, a creative, a shifting channels that are being used, which I rarely see actual clear documentation of, right? I mean, you take, take the shittiest examples of like putting putting notes annotations of we change these things into a Google Analytics or Adobe Analytics interface zero structure it's just kind of notation so i part of me was hearing like well that would be amazing to sit back and say let's capture changing the creative that's a that's a decision we can make changing fundamentally changing the channel mix or maybe it's more structured than that ramping up on connected TV, ramping down on display, like capturing the range of decisions at the business partner's disposal seems like an area, and maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, Michael, but that's I was that's where my brain started to head to is actually help them figure out what decisions they are within their practical control to make. I mean, I and, think 
helping them think through those things is definitely the role of analytics teams. And I think really good analysts spend a lot of time with their stakeholders and learn like, what are the levers you have and how do they work? And you know, what, what do you expect is going to happen when you make this change? And I think, you know, as analytics teams, we always want to collect as much data as possible. I think it's important to be judicious about what data are we trying to collect and how much, you know, work are we potentially putting on someone when it comes to collecting that? Like we want to be smart. Otherwise people will get burned out and they'll be like, they'll stop doing it because they're not seeing value from it. But I definitely think that as, as analysts, it's very helpful for us to understand really what those decisions are and then be thinking about what can we learn from these different decisions that are being made and how can we you know, use that to drive the business forward? And so all of those things, I think, come together in really high functioning analytics teams because they're, try- they're always trying to think about how can we drive the business forward? What do we need to do to know in order to be able to do that? And then what are the levers that we have in order to be able to like generate that knowledge through experimentation and whether that's a formal randomized control trial or just like a before and after we change this thing and it seemed like things got better. So that's some data, right? We can use that. And that sort of work, I think, is a big part of of being a high-functioning anal- analytics team where we have to operate under uncertainty and we have to figure out what's the best that we can do with the limited information, that limited information, time, and energy that we have. I don't know if that answered your question. But when you have like 350 to 500 marketers in different time zones with different expectations, with different understandings of data. Like, it almost sounds... That's your problem. Yeah, but it almost sounds like... (laughs) It almost sounds to have, like, good triangulation. You basically need to always be in the room, right? And that's not an option. Like, there has to be a framework you can give them to how do you make the decision or, like, what is going to guide you when I can't be there? Because, yes, I totally agree, like, in a perfect world, you have this super close embedded relationship. But the reality is when you have a really big company and a really big team, and I appreciate, dear listeners, that is not everyone, and I am complaining about my own problem right now. Um, (laughs) But, like, you you can't always be there, right? So, like, what are the frameworks that you can use to help them manage that uncertainty and also the conflicting information they get from different data sources, you know? This is such a good question. And I'll, you know, I think this is a really hard question. So I'll talk a little bit about it, but I don't think there's any, you know, no silver bullets, right? I don't think that there's a a fixed answer to this. So the things that I would think about for frameworks is what data do you use to make which decision, right? And so if you're working with 350 to 500 marketers, it's like, okay, you're going to need to use platform data, what's going on with Facebook clicks or whatever, to make some amount of decisions. What are the decisions that you want to use when you're looking at that data? Like day-to-day, what's going on? Maybe you're using that information to switch out different campaigns or creatives or whatever. It's going to vary business by business. And then sort of beyond that, like what tools do you want to use to make which decision? Okay, we've got experimental results. How do we... And you need to sort of put together training materials for these marketers because they are the ones who, you know, have their hands on the controls effectively. But like, I think you can put together frameworks that operate are going to operate at different levels and which different types of data do you want them thinking about when they're making those different decisions? I don't think there's getting around that. One of the things that some people have been talking about, Eric Sufert in particular, has talked about this idea of the the marketing econometrician effectively is like that's sort of the new CMO role or not new CMO role, but it's like becoming a really important role on marketing teams. And I think every marketer needs to be thinking about this a little bit. How do we analyze data? How do we use that to make decisions? So hopefully your marketers are somewhat data literate 
And then beyond that, you can build them tools or build them frameworks about which data to use to make which decisions and how to start pulling that together. And then sort of even beyond that, what's the superstructure of reporting that we're going to rep- provide to them? Ideally, again, along with training about how these numbers are calculated and what the pros and cons or strengths and weaknesses of those different metrics are. And then I think that that's sort of the best that you can do in addition to just like providing support on additional deep dives where they need it. But that's how I think about at least getting started. Mo, I'm curious what y'all are actually doing. Well, the the good news is that I think my homework this week is going to get an A++ because um, (laughs) you've pretty much literally described what I'm working on at the moment with the team um, of like, what is the right data source to use for which decision at what level? And like, we've taken it down a step of like almost a step further of like, this framework is also dependent on your KPI, right? Because like, if you're in a market where you're building awareness, that's very different if you're a market where you're trying to have growth. So it's like the frame, like what's available, I guess, from a measurement perspective is also dependent on like the goal or the objective that that you're after in that particular market. So yeah, I don't think I'm going to fail. Uh, hopefully. <laughs> I'll let you know how so, it goes. So I'm going to I'm going to try to pivot to a slightly <laughs> different take on this because I think there is a premise with all of this. I mean, this was that was that was great, but the what's in the back of my head is how many marketers have I worked with and I have very little patience for analysts who disparage their business partners. However, I may start to head down that path. Like decision as human beings, there's like, there is inertia, right? So this, there is a premise that the marketer that take marketer X is one, both empowered to make a meaningful decision. And two, they have enough, interest and motivation to to not kind of just maintain whatever the status quo there's always a status quo we're just going to kind of do the same thing we did last year like that's the Mm. the classic do i feel like there are times where the well the analyst isn't giving me good enough data to make a good decision i wonder if that is sometimes a unless i have absolute certainty that I should do something different. It's pretty easy to surrender to the siren song of just keep doing what I've been doing, which probably isn't going to move me backwards, but may also not move me forward, but I can hope. I just, I think of like, if you've got 350 marketers, how many of them are actually trying to make real decisions, how many of them are going to say, well, no, 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 the agency's optimizing my media. I just, I just manage the the funding to the media agency and I trust them to make the decisions. I guess, does that have any resonance? So this is just a business management problem. Like I would say that there's a lot of analysts out there who aren't going to try to push the business forward either. And if you have that, that's like a, it's just a business problem, right? Yeah. You could have a team of hundreds of engineers who don't contribute much code and don't push the product forward. I think if you're in this world where you have 300 to 500 marketers who aren't doing anything for the business, like that's your problem. Like we don't even need to talk about data at all. You just need to get better at managing your marketing program. Well, I'm more saying there may be like 50 who are both throwing the analytics team under the bus for not being able to provide more precision, but really they're not that in. They're kind of just kicking the, I'm not trying to. I would, I would say like my experience is less like throwing under the bus. It's more the perspective of like, 
well, I can't make a decision because I don't have X data. I don't have Y dashboard. Like if I just have this thing, then I will know what decision to make, which is like this completely false narrative. And we all, I think we all know I, that. I think that is throw. That, that, yeah, but it's not, it's not, it's not malicious. I don't think it's malicious. I think it's like their experience is I had this data source before. And if I have it again, then I'll know what decision to make. I disagree that that's what they. <laughs> Michael, have. it's at this point in the show <laughs> where think- we should tell you that this is where we process all of our trauma um, related to data. (laughs) We're all in it together here, all right? We've all seen some ugly, we all have some ugly battle wounds, it sounds like. Well, but I guess, but I I think, Mo, I mean, I I was right there with you to the, well, if I just had this thing, but to me, that often seems grounded in like a, a personal, historical, fictional narrative, or I always assume that if I just had this thing, I never had this thing, but I've been able to walk around for five years saying, I just need this thing. Like, like you said, it's a, it's a false narrative, but I, but I, I, I guess where I'm, where I was reacting to was the, oh yeah, yeah. I was getting perfect information on some dashboard before. But I mean, it wasn't perfect, but their perception was that it was perfect. That's the problem, right? Like as you go to more complex measurement solutions, like I think that's the thing is like you're trying to say to them like, hey, this isn't right or like this isn't right. The uncertainty is higher here. But I think sometimes and I was actually going to ask Michael about this, particularly with underpowered experiments. I think what happens is, is like they don't trust the model then. It's like, well, if if uncertainty is higher, it's because the model's less good, not because we're introducing you to more complexity. Does that make sense? I don't know if I'm explaining this at all. I think that does make sense. And I think it's a real problem. And this is just sort of where, you know, undergraduate statistics education has really failed us, where people get so fixated <laughs> on like, is the p-value less than 0.05 or is the r squared greater than 90? It's very Unfortunately, I think it is on us as analytics practitioners and experts to really do the education with these stakeholders about how to start to think statistically and really understand uncertainty. And I think, Mo, exactly what you described, which is when there is more uncertainty, there is... when there's, or there, when there's more complexity, there is more uncertainty. And that's just a thing that comes with having a growing business. And that's a thing that everyone is going to have to sort of get used to and then start to think about, well, what do we do assuming that that's true? And I think, again, it's just this idea that we need to do a better job of educating these stakeholders on what's really important and how to start to reason through this, knowing that they've probably gone through the same undergraduate statistics education that we did that just put the emphasis on the wrong stuff. It put the emphasis on getting to a p-value of less than or equal, of less than 0.05. And I think we all know that that is not a good way to make decisions. But unfortunately, for a lot of our stakeholders, that's all they know. And so we're going to have to do some re-education with them to get them to understand what are the true trade-offs here and how should we think about making decisions in the face of uncertainty when we don't have a number that's just like a p-value that will tell us whether or not something's true or not. This is making me think a lot about like all of my clients have just gone through their 2024 strategic planning or some of them are wrapping them up now. And a lot of times like we think about and talk about our marketers being like our end users of what we're doing, our stakeholders. But they really have a lot of stakeholders themselves to answer to, whether it's like up their chain or mm. even once you're talking about someone who's more senior, the person who's making the ask for those budgets with conversations with the CFO. And so if you have this, if you're delivering this burden of uncertainty 
in a way that your stakeholder, the person you're meeting with is, is having to grapple with, then they have to go and explain it themselves. And I think that that's part of the like, uh, the pit in the stomach that you give them a little bit. <laughs> well, but I wonder, so Mo back on the, the, the less, and on that front is part of your moving towards more sophistication, trying to get them the concepts of like actual outcomes and incrementality from, I'm still kind of caught up in the, well, historically I was very simple. I just was trying to maximize or minimize my cost per acquisition yes. and I could punch that in a tool and it would just drive it and everything worked well. And that's so part of what it's not a increasingly, I mean, there is increasing uncertainty, but it's increasing uncertainty, but focused on a business outcome that's incrementality and not a delusional look at, at a, at a simple and easy metric. Okay. Right? So again, okay. this is my okay. homework this week, but <laughs> I like, I can tell you what I have written in my head as like the way to explain this when it comes to like why we're making this move, like I guess why we're moving less away from attribution, but what, what role attribution still does play. But before I do that, I want to hear what Michael thinks. Like, how would you answer that? Wait, so repeat the question exactly. So I I was thinking that some of that movement is when you're focused on a, 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 a tactical metric, a minimize the CPA, minimize CPC, minimize the CPM. Yeah, okay. And you can turn the machine on and that kind of – whereas when you move to something like a MMM is one example, but anything that's saying we're focused more on an – incremental lift in a business outcome it's that's kind of a more uncertainty may come along with it even though it's also focusing on a much more meaningful uh, dependent variable I, I mean i think you sort of laid it out i'll sort of run through how i explain this to people so my first step is the thing that we actually care about as marketers is incrementality right what is the causal relationship between our marketing activity and the business outcome that we care about that's the thing that we care about if we can, if we know what that relationship is, we can optimize the business. When we were first starting out as a business, right, we were only operating in one or two marketing channels and we were able to log into the Facebook reporting platform and see a CPA number there. That number was never like sort of measured in a way to truly get at incrementality. But when we were only in one or two marketing channels, it was pretty close to incrementality because we were a much smaller business. We had good faith that for every dollar that we were putting in here, the last touch attribution or whatever tracking they're doing was getting us pretty close to incrementality. Now that we're a bigger, more complex business and we're operating in a lot more different channels where we don't have faith that we're actually able to track everyone across all of their different touch points, those CPA estimates or those impression estimates are now much further away from incrementality. And because of that, we need to introduce different measurement method methodologies. The true incrementality is not knowable. Like there's no data source that we can go and look at in order to get that number. And so we have to approximate it with these different methodologies. And one of them could be experimentation and one of them could be MMM and other things. But that's really the goal of a business. That's always been the goal. It's just that our circumstances have changed to get more complex. So now we need different methodologies which have more uncertainty baked into them in order to approximate that true number that we've always really cared about. That's the story that I tell to try to bring people along that journey of why we're introducing more complexity because it's always been about incrementality. It's just how we measure it has to get more complex as our environment gets more complex. Well, fuck. My biggest problem is that 
I need the transcript from the episode because <laughs> what I wrote, I actually think what you said is better than what I wrote. And so now I just need to change that and be like credit to Michael. But like, this is why we're doing, I, I mean, I think the, the ad that you made was the point about CPNA being, um, like closer to incrementality when you're a smaller business, but as you get bigger, it gets further away. Like, I think that's a really good addition. Like I kind of was going with like, well, the world of attribution, like it gives you like directionality, but not always good directionality. And as you add more channels, it gets, it gets less useful. But I think the way you've framed that is, like I said, I'm, I'm probably going to have to paraphrase some of that. Please do. And tell me how it goes. <laughs> uh, thanks for making my job easier. I, uh, like I said, this episode was very timely for me. <laughs> so one of the other questions um, that we wanted to uh, ask you, or I wanted to ask you about, I should say, is what do you think are some of the big things that get in the way of actionability? And I have a feeling that one of the things you're going to say is vanity metrics <laughs> um, or a focus on the wrong things. But I would love to hear in your words, Michael, what some of the, the biggest things that get in the way <clears throat> of actionability are. Yeah. So, I mean, actionability is a it's definitely a thing that I think a lot of analytics people talk about, which is like, we want the insights to be actionable, but like, we don't think a lot about what that means. When I think about actionability, I think what we really want is we want to be able to drive measure like actual changes that some sort of business operator is making in the real world. That's going to drive the business forward. I think a lot of times what gets in the way of actionability is one uncertainty, which we've spent a long time talking about on this podcast. So I won't sort of recover that. But another thing is like institutional willingness to experiment. And this is a thing that I'm, Mm. you know, I run a startup, Mm. right? So it's a thing that I spend a lot of time thinking about, but I think as a business, or I would encourage most businesses to think about how to experiment more and how can we encourage more experimentation? Because what you, it's a real problem if you have an indication that something is working, but no one in the business feels empowered to go try to chase that down and learn, could this be a huge opportunity for us or not? If you have to go through a million different phases of approval to make any different type of change, or if you're locked into the plan for the year and you can't deviate from that, then you lose that ability to really test and learn where I think that's actually what's really important from like actually making something like an insight that is actionable, actually actionable is for the organization to have a willingness to experiment and recognize Mm -hmm. that a lot of those experiments are going to turn out like not great, right? You're not going to get the positive outcome probably in most of those experiments. But as a business, you need to be able to like make those changes and do those sorts of experiments that could end up pushing the business forward. And if you're not willing to do that as an organization or as a team or whatever, then you're going to have a real problem with actually taking any insight and bringing it to life in a way that's going to drive the business forward. I don't know if that was the question you were, at, you were asking, but like that's it. sort of how I think about like what ac- what it actually takes to make something actionable. Can we like loop back a little bit? Because I, yeah, I feel like we're quite aligned on this uh, like experiment mindset or in the startup land, a growth mindset, whatever you want to call it. But I kind of like dropped in a little bit earlier about, you know, like when we have an underpowered experiment and the blowback is sometimes like, well, then your tooling is wrong. Like it's actually, it's not actually about the fact that um, we have no result or an inconclusive result or there's too much noise to detect a signal. Like it becomes this like perception that maybe there's a problem with the tooling. And I'm, I'm interested to hear your perspective on that. This is a really 
Great question. And a thing that I spend a lot of time thinking about, again, it sort of comes back to, I think a lot of people have been miseducated about statistics and they, you know, only care about the P less than 0.05. But there's a lot of experimental results where we get information back where maybe the impact of this experiment was that it's not statistically significantly different from zero, which is fine, but it might be statistically significantly different from some other value, which might actually be important to us as an organization, right? Maybe based on the results of this experiment, we know that the effect can't be greater than 3x ROI on whatever the intervention is. Maybe that's helpful. Maybe it's not. But I actually really always want to push people to think about what are the results of this test. In general, there's like a maximum effect read and a minimum effect read. And we can actually use that to make decisions, even if it's not, quote unquote, statistically significant. And so when it comes to, again, you know, building up our team to really think hard about what an experiment is and how to think about those results. Those are some of the things that I start to encourage people to think about, which is like, what does power mean? But really like, how can we use the results of this, of this test to make decisions using thresholds that aren't just like, is it greater or less than zero, but actually have other values that are relevant to our business and where we can take these underpowered tests or tests that have significant results and still use them to infer truths about the world that might be important to us. And so, again, I think it's up to us as analytics practitioners to do a better job of educating our stakeholders in terms of how to think this way. But I actually think there's a lot of power there. And again, I think even people who haven't been trained in statistics, when they're explained this in the right way, they do have an ability to grasp that and really understand what this means. And so, you know, I would love for analytics teams to make um, a more concerted effort to do that education within their organization to help people understand, okay, what's actually going on here in terms of the things that we care about learning and how can we use that to make real business decisions? They shouldn't just keep segmenting and slicing their experimental results until they find something that pops up. Uh, cause this oh, is a place yeah, where that XKCD comic oh. about the jelly beans comes in. You guys send yeah. that around to the team at least once a year, right? <laughs> like you, you got to make sure that everyone is aware that if you do enough tests, you will get statistical significance. One last question. I'll allow one more, but okay. it better be lending itself to Correct. a brief answer. Great. So let's say you do take the team on this journey and you educate them and you do like a year and a half of like really bringing them along for the ride, but then you have a whole bunch of new people. Like, do you just keep starting from scratch every time you get new stake? Like, is that literally... Now you have 800 marketers. <laughs> no, but I'm just like... I don't, I don't know. Like, it, I mean, look, I'm describing sort of an ideal world that I'm not sure if it really exists. But I think hopefully, right, if you have a whole team that's been trained on this way of thinking, they can educate the newcomers and they can say, hey, we use this tool to think this way. And this is how we make decisions. And, you know, we don't just make a decision on P less than or equal to 0.05, because here's the slide that everyone on the team has seen that describes, you know, what a confidence interval or a credible interval is and how we use that to make decisions. And I think hopefully, again, it's not, you're not going to be starting from scratch with every single person. If you can build a sort of like core nucleus, I think, of people who really get it, they can be evangelists for the rest of the team mm. and can bring people onto the process. Again, this is an idealized version of the future that I'm imagining, <laughs> and I hope that we can all one day achieve. But that's what I think like actually can happen in practice. Again, these are smart people that are trying to do their job as best as they can. I think once they are educated in the right way, they, you know, aren't just going to be like, uh, you know, do whatever you want. They're going to try to bring people along with them, especially if it's yielding positive results for the business. 
true. I like and you it. have the and you have the ability to you know give them ten to fifteen percent more love than the ones who maybe are lag mm. laggards, right? I mean, there's it feels like there's a little bit of an ability to kind of nudge in that direction. But okay, well, uh, we could spend like another two hours clearly on this. Uh, this was a wow. This was a fun discussion, but we need to head to rapper we're going to miss out my certainty of this being the perfect episode is is not actually going to happen so before we go we like to do uh, a last call everyone uh, we go around the around the bar and everyone shares a, a thought a, a, a blog post a podcast episode something they've read something that they think our audience might find interesting whether it is uh, whether they're absolutely certain about it or not these can be shared with a high degree of uncertainty, and I have wildly over-belabored that particular little trope. So with that, save me once again. We'll start with you, Michael. Do you have a last call for the to share? Yeah, I sure do. Last week, I went back and reread Paul Graham's essay on how to do great work, which I personally find very inspiring as a startup founder, but also I highly recommend to sort of everyone who wants to think about how to how to have a big impact on the world. It also reminded me to go on more walks, which is very good for my mental and physical health. So very much enjoyed that rereading that last week. I need to read it. I'm at 18,000 steps today. So maybe I've done something right. <laughs> Humble brag. Yeah. <laughs> I've not read that though. So I want to go check it out. Uh, it's a well, long one. So carve out, you know, a good 45 minutes for it. Okay. I can do that. Val. What's your last call? Yeah. So like I alluded to earlier, very much in 2024 strategic planning mode. And so some fodder that we got ahead of a meeting actually through search discovery was a video, an HBR video that features Roger Martin, which I wasn't familiar with him before, but I have gotten into a lot of his content since. He is a former dean of Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. And he has a video that obviously link It's called a plan is not a strategy. And it's really interesting the way that he breaks it down and talking about strategy as like this theory and it's a set of choices to put yourself in a playing field um, to make sure that you win. And I really like the way that he describes why you fall into this trap of planning and why it's so comfortable and why strategy is so hard, but some frameworks that can really help you think about what it truly is and how it can be different. So I liked it. It was a good, good way to think. That's wow. Interesting. And Mo, what's your last call? It's a weird one. I'm still uh, <laughs> ruminating on it. So it was an article in Time magazine called The Case for Mediocracy. Mediocrity. Sorry, I always butcher that word. And it was kind of, it goes through like American ambition and, you know, wanting to be the best you can possibly be. It goes through like the great resignation and quiet quitting and all that sort of stuff. But then it also goes through a lot of the research about like people working shorter days, like part-time hours, four days a week and, you know, the link to happiness or being more satisfied with life and basically comes up with this concept of like maybe part of the problem is that we're striving for greatness when we should be happy with good. It's a really interesting article because the author also goes into like you know, how can be, how can be being good be okay when we have so many like systemic issues that we want to tackle as a society, like racism and sexism and all that sort of stuff. But like, also how do you personally as an individual possibly benefit? I, I, it, it was just, I don't know if I agree with it, but it just makes you reflect a little bit on kind of your life and the hours you do and, you know, the, 
tech burnout space that many of us um, float around in, an agency burnout space that that um, is true for some of you. So, yeah, I, I just thought it was um, good to get you thinking about your priorities. What about you, Tim? So, so dear, hmm? well, I, I just say, so dear listeners, if you start to notice kind of a tapering <laughs> off of the quality of this show, just know we had like a... A group, a group reading assignment. We all decided to start just just thirty percent mailing it in from here on out. Uh, oh shit! Uh, no, that that's that's intriguing. So my last call, I have definitely just had a last call in the past that was recommending just Katie Milkman's The Choiceology podcast overall. Mm. I think I've probably recommended specific episodes, but I'm gonna do it again. She had an episode that was called Jumping to Conclusions, which I think winds up tying a little bit into this this discussion we just had because it talks about our tendency to basically under-respond to strong signals and over-respond to weak signals and how there's Ooh. been a lot of research done in that area, which I think maybe sparked some of my, like, how what's really driving whether we want to make decisions. But I just love the format of her her podcast it's kind of like tells some story from from history and then it kind of goes to some usually an academic who's done a lot of research in an area sometimes it's not the strongest of strong links but i mean i'll even throw a hat tip to charles schwab they sponsor that podcast and it's like there's just the lightest of possible um kind of plugs for charles schwab at the end like the content is just really really good so with that, this has been a fascinating discussion. I've been looking forward to it, and and I think it lived, it exceeded my expectations. I'm certain it did. Okay, stop, stop it, stop using the word certainty. But Michael, thanks so much for coming on. We kind of kicked around different ideas. We had a few little bumps along the way of uh, making this happen. But thanks so much for coming on the show. This was a blast. Thanks for having me. I would love to do another two or three hours on this or eight to 12, <laughs> depending on what y'all are up for, whatever y'all want. Ditto. And and I, I will say I will make a, a, a recommendation to go find Michael on LinkedIn and, and follow the stuff. As I said at the top of the show, he does produce a lot of content and has lots of things worth kind of checking out. You're also on, on the the X, the, the Twitter, I believe. I still call you, it Twitter. Okay. Uh, is that at Mike underscore Kaminsky? That's me. People just know how to have to figure out how to spell Kaminsky. So exercise left um, of the reader, as we like to say in the, in, in the academic world. That's nice. Uh, I'm going to throw in, since I'm actually kind of moderating this episode, I'm going to throw in one of our rare plugs to uh, leave a rating and review of the show. If you've enjoyed this, dis this, this discussion or past ones, we would love to uh, get your uh, rating and review on, on Spotify or Apple or wherever you listen. So I'll put that plug in. No show would be complete without thanking our erstwhile, is that the right use of the word? Our wonderful producer, Josh Crowhurst, who will uh, make this come together and not be mediocre. And we would love to hear from you. We're on LinkedIn. We're all findable, as is our, our page for the, the show on LinkedIn, on Twitter or X, on the Measure Slack. If you The Measure Slack has been doing a lot of work to get through the backlog of requests to join. So if you have wanted to explore it or have signed up and wondered what happened. If you go to join.measure.chat, you can 
kind of fill out the form to get added to the measure slack that is continues to be a large and vibrant and growing community. So with that, I think I've hit all the final housekeeping. So regardless of whether this episode has made you more confident or less confident about how to work with your business partners, I know for myself, for Mo and for Val, we can say we're absolutely determined and positive that you should keep analyzing. Thanks for listening. Let's keep the conversation going with your comments, suggestions, and questions on Twitter at at AnalyticsHour, on the web at AnalyticsHour.io, our LinkedIn group, and the Measure Chat Slack group. Music for the podcast by Josh Crowhurst. So smart guys wanted to fit in, so they made up a term called analytics. Analytics don't work. I love Venn diagrams. It's just something about those three circles and the analysis about where there is the intersection, right? Okay, and finally, uh, if you're comfortable, we'd love to get your mailing address. We have a little, a small token of our appreciation for having you come on the show. I mean, the pleasure is all mine. I'll type it in. It takes like years for things to get here, so don't send anything live or oh, I've, <laughs> I've I've sent things to Australia. I've sent things to New Zealand. We should and start sending live stuff. That's way more exciting. Yeah. <laughs> when we sent it, it was a hatchling. How large was... How many people would the chicken serve by the time that it arrived? I used to be in New York. I actually now live in Mexico. Ah. That is way more okay, fun. Then. It is way more fun. Wow. That's why I live here. It's wonderful. And, like, do they actually have good tacos? Incredible tacos everywhere. Right. There's a stand right on the corner. I can go any day. Dollar a taco. They're amazing. Oh, and they do like the good corn tacos. None of that flour crap. <laughs> it, well, it depends on what... I mean, you can get flour tacos as well. Flour tacos are in the north of Mexico. Mexico City is really corn taco, taco land. Tim's actually going to murder me. Like, he's going to jump through the computer to kill me, aren't you? What? No, you're fine. Oh. Well, yeah, for I mean, because I I was raised in the south of Texas, so I was raised on floured tortillas. So, Ooh. rock flag, and I I just I don't know.